legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Simon Siddle, who joins us to discuss the trend in Western popular music towards the inane, the robotic, and the infantile, a social engineering agenda pushed hard by the handful of multinational corporations that sit atop the music industry pyramid. Siddle believes that this degradation of Western music has been happening for centuries, so old and so deeply ingrained the elements of this pernicious anti-consciousness agenda are now part of the musical DNA of even the most well-meaning and conscious musicians. It's the perfect subconscious mind control mechanism. We're using what is in reality a shamanic mind-altering tool for recreational jollies en masse, and it's ruining people's psychic health and the health of our entire society. But strategies exist for both music lovers and musicians to help them detox from the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviours around music that slowly but surely dehumanises. Hello and welcome, Simon. Thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed your show for years and it's really quite a buzz to be on the other side of the mic. Well, thank you very much. That's really much appreciated. Now, your work came to my um, attention through uh, the course that you offer, basically entitled Poisonous Music. Now, we're going to be talking about uh, what that means, the implications of that, and, and how you see um, the role of music, past, present, and future. Before we jump into that, uh, for listeners who don't know, tell them a little bit about your background and your work in general. Okay. I'm a, a lifelong musician. I'm a pianist, a composer, an improviser, and a teacher. Um if you uh, understand such symbologies, then I can tell you that I'm a Scorpio sun sign um, with lots of Libra and Sagittarian energy in me. And if you understand Myers-Briggs typings, I'm an INTP, which makes me very much into analysis and synthesis. Um, I was nearly a child prodigy. I started studying music too late. I was nearly 11 when I started. Uh, so... The consequence of that was that by the time I'd come to the age that uh, I could have been admitted into a royal college of music or something like that, I wasn't quite at the you know technically on fire level that they wanted at that age. So I ended up going to uh, De Montfort University, where they st- they offered a a course which studied twentieth century music and experimental music. Um. When I was there, I studied with uh, a teacher called Suzanne Cheatham, who's a student with Yvonne Lorio, who is Olivier Messiaen's second wife and his greatest interpreter. So that's my pianistic pedigree, if you like. Um, 
And while I was there, I, I performed such solo works as uh, John Adams' Phrygian Gates and my third year recital, I performed uh, Charles Ives' Concord Sonata, which is quite a mountain in the, in the, the piano literature. I also um, was part of a group which was only the second group outside of Steve Reich's own musicians group to play Steve Reich's uh, Music for 18 Musicians. And I was also involved in quite a lot of other um, hardcore 60s and 70s minimalist performances. Outside of college and music study, I was already by the age of 13 studying astrology and reading such things as Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger series. And by the time I was at college, I was also taking my fair share of LSD, which kept my mind very open to um, different viewpoints during a time in my life where, by the nature of university, they're actually trying to solidify your viewpoints as you go along. So after college, I basically made a living as a piano teacher. It was the easiest made way to make a living. Um, and I carried on studying lots of occult subjects. And then in 1998, I think it was, I got the internet and immediately plunged into studying conspiracy. I'd, I'd always been suspicious of the world around me and this just joined up with my thinking. I also, at the time, started using some of the things, that, the mind-altering techniques I'd been learning from such people as Robert Anton Wilson, and I started using them in my piano teaching. And this developed to the point that by my 30s, I'd become a kind of musician's medicine man, where I was able to find deep psychological and neurological blocks in musicians and sort them out in fairly short order, so that other teachers would end up sending their problem students to me for a few sessions to get them past their problems. And through my teaching, I began to realize that I was a recovering empath as well, by which I mean that I could, while stood across the other side of the room from my students, facing away with them with my eyes closed, I could still feel their muscle tensions, their nervous tensions, their thoughts as they were playing, and I began to realize that this was part of what I'd lived through my entire life, was being an energy sensitive and living in a world where this had never been explained to me, and I'd been, you know, troubling with it, putting up with it, uh, trying to cope with it for years without having any understanding of what it really was. And it was actually through my teaching that I began to recover that sense of myself. So from then on, it became really quite an obvious path. Uh, it became a living truth to me that all music was actually a shamanic enterprise, by which I mean an enterprise that is intended to alter the mind and the emotions and the body. And as I was looking at the, the, um, the positive aspects of all of this, it began to dawn on me in the way that it only dawns on people when they've been repressing something their entire lives, avoiding it out of fear, that music had the capacity to do as much damage by that same route as it did good. And that's when I started on my path towards creating this thing I have now called the Conscious Music School. Okay, so that's pretty comprehensive um, explanation of where you've come from uh, where you are and where you might be going. Um, I can certainly identify with a lot of that um, in terms of my own musical journey. 
Mm-hmm. And one thing, just what you said just at the end there, I think a lot of people will probably raise an eyebrow when you talk about music having the capacity to do as much damage as it does good, because in my experience, a lot of people go through a similar sort of arc when it comes to music. It may be something they have no particular interest in when they're very young. And bear, sure. in, bear in mind that I'm speaking as someone who's middle-aged now, so the, the landscape has changed in terms of, what, oh, yes. <laughs> of, of what, what entertainment and what distractions are available to children these days and to, to young adults, you know, teenagers. That has definitely changed since I was young. However, mm-hmm. of the people of my generation, there was say, perhaps very little interest in music when you were little. You, <clears throat> there might be music in the household, there might not be. But it's very much a cliche that when you got into your teenage years, it was one of those things that you started to take an interest in, partly because your peers were taking an interest in. You know, if you were, you might take interest in members of the opposite sex or if you're that way inclined members of the same sex but you have a kind of a sexual awakening is beginning to happen all sorts of things as you begin to transition from being a child to an adult and this is where this interest in music comes in and then the people that have been around me my life some like myself have maintained a very intense interest in music to the point of making it all or part of their, their their living their career but most have even if they're in later life enjoy music it's quite often the music that they grew up with they're very music's a very nostalgic thing for them as they get older their yeah. t- their tastes become fossilized they don't look they don't seek out new music and certainly the role that music may have played during their teenage years you know for some people it became everything it was you know they may have even yeah, started yeah. playing an instrument that when life comes along the adult responsibilities of work and children and mortgages and responsibilities then that interest in music can fade and that's the very popular arc the most common arc that i see in people's lives and just to repeat i know it's changed now so when someone like yourself who's this intense immersion in every aspect of music when you come along and start talking about music as potentially to use your word poisonous for a lot of people they're okay okay well we know there's Music. We know that there's junk in the charts, you know, but are you serious? I mean, how can it actually damage someone? So, and I think even in the world, I spent a lot of time as a music critic, um, that even in that world where people who t- believe they're writing seriously about music, and they are, they're considering music mm-hmm. seriously, they're taking it seriously, it is important to them. Not very many kind of cross the Rubicon that you have. So at what point did you really was it a gradual process of, of kind of awakening to this a realization of what the music was very important to our ancient ancestors one of the reasons we maybe don't think so much about that is because we know so little about their music but yeah, yeah. and you began to then say well that as, as as in terms of sound and sound put together and how it affects our being our soul you know how physically how it affects us nothing's really we haven't evolved that much so i'm just wondering at what point was there a tipping point or was it a gradual process where you came to say that there's something um, malefic at work here and I need to, I need to, I need to be talking about this. I need to be, you know. Okay. Well, it's, it actually um, mirrors uh, the, the psychological process by which you can come to realize that you've been repressing something an awful time, an awful long time in your life. It's something that my experience of coming to realize this was essentially a a, uh, a slow but horrific build-up of understood pieces of evidence sort of piling up against this um, this limit beyond which was the the um, 
the, the acknowledgement that music could be poisonous. And I defended it, defended myself from it for years, thinking, well, yeah, okay, so you get something like Lady Gaga, uh, you know, putting videos of basically demons up and talking about the, 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 the dehumanizing things that she talks about. Yes, okay, there's bits of dangerous music in terms of their lyric and video content and stuff like that. I was aware of that for years before I came to realize that actually music itself is a force which can shape our pre-linguistic minds, by which I mean that um, it's been proven by scientific uh, experiment that music can improve a child's capacity for uh, joined up thinking and language from experiencing complex and, and subtle music um, before they can even speak. So music has been demonstrated to have an effect on a kind of a part of our mind which is underneath the processing of language. And if you've read any Robert Anton Wilson, you understand that if you get underneath language, what you're getting to there is our belief systems, what he usefully calls our BS. Yeah. So the way that music can produce its own syntax and vocabulary can impress itself onto us. And not only can it do it in our infancy before we're aware of what language does, but it carries on doing that through our life because we are not so aware of how influences below the level of linguistic clarity, the linguistic concreteness can affect us. Yeah. When I began to realize this, it became obvious that just as music, which is deeply complex and uh, richly um, and subtly inflected, and has, you know, um, complex and interesting form and emotional dynamics in it, there is also music which has none of that stuff, that it is essentially plastic, robotized. Yeah, it's had, there's an enormous amount of modern pop music which has had almost all of its musical, its human musical subtlety ironed out of it by computers. This kind of music is still giving us an influence, and that influence is be simplistic, be robotized, be ironed out. Also, if you listen to a lot of music which is what I term uh, mono-emotional, meaning music which only sticks in one emotion throughout a, uh, throughout a song or a piece, most of the time people are listening to pieces like that uh, to use it as some form of emotional crutch inside themselves, meaning that we can either use that mono-emotional music to um, inject back into ourselves an emotion that we find missing, or we can use it to uncork and uh, detox from an emotion that we can't get out of ourselves, there's quite a few different functions that uh, music's emotions can have inside us. But what I find is that when we stick to doing that for too long, it becomes very much like using a street drug to uh, sort out your own emotional or psychic state. So, you know, somebody who 
just has never learned how to calm down properly will be very much open to getting addicted to barbiturates or cannabis, for instance. You can abuse music in the same way and in the same way that um, it will have an effect by using drugs like that. You can come to a place where you rely on music to give you the capacity for that emotional dynamism inside yourself. That's at least one aspect of how music can damage us. Well, I've done a lot of shows um, touching upon popular culture and the dimensions of that, which are um, controlling and dumbing down. And a lot of people who will happily listen to whatever the top 10 on the radio in their cars, they drive to work, not think twice about it, might, mm-hmm. might at the same time reel against trash TV and just think, oh, yeah, it's total mind rot, you know, chewing gum for the eyes. It's just nonsense. It's gibberish. Or they might yeah. talk, they might talk about certain magazines at supermarket checkouts. Oh my, you know, who reads this stuff sort of mm-hmm. thing. But then for a lot of people, music is they think of it, even if they don't like particularly highbrow or interesting music from the point of what they, you know, what, what they, they wouldn't think of themselves as, as, as critics, you know, as like, um, how can I put it? And any sort of avant-garde. They say, no, I just like what's on Radio 1, whatever, you know, one of the pop, sure. and I just want to like what's on the pop station or, you know, the classic rock or whatever. I, you know, just, I like good music, you know, but I don't spend a lot of time. So, but for them, that's almost above the, what they would see as dumbed down popular culture. And that's an interesting divide for me that a lot of people don't, I think they, they, they see music as, d- despite it being part of just the popular culture milieu they they, they'll see it as so throwaway as to almost be like well yeah but how could you know we know some people take music seriously but um it's exempt from that in some way you know and and i think that's perhaps a a a failure to appreciate how music works you know because it's all all music is all music is doing something to you all the time even that you know the the blandest most soporific nonsense um and no matter you know how, how you approach it it's doing something to you subconsciously even if you think i'm not listening to that it's just a sound you know if you get into an elevator and there's music in there it's still doing something to you whether you're aware of it or not so and i think a lot of people don't appreciate the power of music music um something i only learned recently was that um when people hear uh, pop music for the first time um uh, say just walking around a shop or something and it's on the radio in the shop uh, it's quite possible for them to hate it at that moment and then come into the shop another half dozen times over the course of the next two weeks. And by the time they've inadvertently, without even thinking about it, heard it five, six times, even though they thought they hated it at the start, the sheer familiarity can bring them to a place where when you poll them about such opinions, they say they actually like the music. So it's come to a point where sheer um, familiarity with a tune has been mistaken for liking something when actually inside your own mind and your own opinions, nothing has shifted since that first moment when you listened to it and went, this is dreadful. So there's an awful lot of unconscious processing of music going on in Western culture all the time. There's a lot of elements to how this uh, functions and how it's come about but I would suggest that at least for the last hundred years or so our culture has been slowly uh, conditioned 
to consider music as a throwaway, as something that can do no particular harm or good. Yeah, it might make us smile, it might make us dance, it might make us cry once in a while, but, you know, that's five minutes of our lives and then we can put it away and go about our lives. We've been conditioned to ignore the idea that music can be just as much of a life-changing art as the greatest paintings or the greatest sculptures or the greatest literature. It's just dying as an idea inside our culture right now. And I think that's an extremely dangerous movement inside our culture, not least because human beings actually need healthy music um, to keep them psychically healthy, or at least a lot of them do. But because when we ignore that possibility that music can be a powerful thing to change us, either for good or for bad, then essentially what we're doing is we're stopping guarding our um, our boundaries inside our own psychic containment. And we're inviting in people to take hold of that power vacuum that we are no longer you know, keeping control of by, by um, exercising a conscious choice of why and what we're doing with our music consumption. Do you think there's any parallel psychologically in the, the sort of twin processes, one of which you've just described, of being, for example, in a public place, hearing a song, maybe in a shopping mall, and thinking, you know, maybe it's so grating that you take notice of it and just go, oh my God, that's awful. And then six months later, you're, you're coming you're, along. Yeah. 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 Your opinion has somehow changed. <laughs> Is there any uh, parallel between that process and the other one where I know lots of people, and I've been like this myself, who found music to be off putting or difficult in some way or just not appealing at first, but having then spending time with it and actually learning to appreciate that there was depth and subtlety and meaning in it. Because, you know, a lot of music that, you know, many people, music has endured for a long time that people, many people consider to be great music. You talk about Mozart in your course materials. So there's a process there where you approach something and at first it's off-putting, uh, but then you take time to see the depth in it. So I'm just wondering if there's any similar similarity between the processes of doing that, but also coming to sort of believe that you like something that you at first you couldn't stand. Well... There's definitely um, the case that uh, uh, making a conscious study of a complex art form can obviously increase your um, enjoyment, your understanding, your entire involvement in that. And I think there might be a very slight parallel in that to the idea of simply getting used to a piece of pop music that you hear in a shopping mall. But the difference is is that you're not involving yourself consciously in that at all. It's just uh, a matter of getting used to something to the point that your initial distaste, your initial alarms going off in your head about it, get a bit bored of running and stop, you know, stop emphasizing the point so strongly to the point that you just think, oh, well, that's part of the environment now. At which point the you know, the simple rhythm underneath it starts to make your foot tap and you think, oh, okay, this is all right. Yes, I do think there's a, there is some connection between the two, but I also think there is some vastly opposite eventual effect from the two. Well, one thing I've noticed in, in 
as far as music in public spaces goes, particularly in stores, because let's face it, that's where a lot of piped music um, yeah. is heard, that I tend to not notice it unless, for some unexpected reason, I consider it to be good. Not necessarily familiar, but it's usually familiar. And I'll give you an example. Yeah. Now, you're a UK, a UK resident, mm-hmm. so uh, a native. You'll be familiar with the, based in our part of England, actually, Morrison's, the supermarket chain. Uh, mm-hmm. In my local Morrison's, I feel that whoever's selecting the music, and it may be just a third-party company that they, they just yeah. buy their yeah. music from, do an unusually good job of playing quality um, rock and pop songs from um, from the last several decades. I quite often find myself posting something on social media. Well, Morrison's knocked it out of the park again. There was just a, <laughs> there was a great song playing, you know, while I was... Well, I was, you know, looking for mushrooms or whatever it happened to be, or tins of beans. So, um, so yeah, I'll notice if if music in the public sphere like that is. And, and the point of my my point being is that I didn't expect it to be any good. I didn't expect it to have any taste or sound like it was consciously selected. I expected it to be so bland uh, or so awful that I basically filter it out of my consciousness altogether. Yeah. Well, I'll reflect back to you another experience I have from living in the north of England, which is going through bus stations. Um, my local bus station, they have constant pipe music on there. I'm, I'm uh, reluctant to even call it music. It's, it's uh, stuff produced by somebody who sounds like they've had a digital audio workstation for a couple of weeks. It's so hastily and dodgily put together. Um, and it's so devoid of um, emotional charge inside this music that it didn't take me long to realize from listening to a playlist that it had been deliberately put together to numb out people's emotions while they were in a bus station. Because for a lot of um, bus stations around the country, it's a place where people with uh, low emotional intelligence and control will hang out to put it politely Um, you get a lot of people who are on the edge of losing it drifting through bus stations and i think they came to the conclusion that if they play music which completely numbs out any kind of extreme in people's emotions they can keep better control inside the space now when you talk about uh, a shop like morrison's using um music for whatever reason it might be i i can't believe that these companies to this day are still just using somebody's arbitrary kind of musical choices something that somebody loves and they put a mixtape together if you like to play in morrison's now i think there is still uh you know market and psychological research going on to uh, into this i probably would suggest that if they're playing music that strikes you as happy, cheerful, and familiar to you, then that is the mood they are trying to keep people in while they're in their shop. They've given up on the idea of trying to um, psychologically drive people into one flavor of emotion with some kind of specialized music, and they've simply come to the conclusion that happy pop music that everybody knows is a fairly effective way of keeping everybody cheerful and moving while they're in their shop. I think what I've probably appreciated is, you know, bands that I like, for example, uh, The Cure, Depeche Mode, 
hearing it in Morrison's, it's on the edge of pop, if you see what I mean. It's it's pop, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. pop but it's it's kind of pitch black, you know, and it's kind of, that's maybe why it's arrested my attention, because I thought, how did this get through the net? I'm not saying that Morrison's is suddenly like a, um, a you know, an, an 80s, you know, haven for, for lovers of 80s music. It's not. Mm. But I just noticed these things. So, but as you say, it's it's still still trying to generate a mood and we all know the amount of money and research that goes into retail spaces from whether it's the placing of um stock to how you funnel people around a space um how you persuade them to buy something how you display things so of course music is always going to be um an important part of that and i think people do understand that they wouldn't expect to hear avant-garde you know electronic instrumental music in a supermarket it's not going to work it's going to be jarring it's going to push out isn't it yeah the interesting thing that uh about music particularly in the bus station it really made me think of the music in such that it is in science fiction dystopias where they're set in a bleak uh usually consumerist dumbed down medicated highly controlled quite often you know fascist future where yeah. where people have very few freedoms but they may have some comforts that the sort of burbling nonsense music you know what we today think of as just royalty free mm. li- library music and such like that tends to set the tone and it does have that that calming effect especially if you're already chemically altered shall we put it that way yeah in terms of your mood so when i hear music uh in elevators or music it's i like the music you're describing in the bus station i just think of people um the classic example would be george lucas's first film thx 1138 and I the, know, yeah. The, yeah with these people shuffling around you know dead eyes soulless and you know being last time i was in a bus station it was in sheffield and it was very much like a future dystopia <laughs> <laughs> what can i say about that um look at um the the change between blade runner and blade runner 2049 for instance we went from pieces of music that uh still to this day are considered classics yeah the 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 the, the piano music in the in the scene in deckard's house to um three trombone notes mm. the, the 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 music that was supplied for is it hans zimmer i think yeah uh, who wrote the music for for Blade Runner twenty forty nine? It's yeah, it was compressed down into something which is basically a meme of noise, nothing more, and it's almost like a, a boiling down into a tiny little spot of this whole sense that you can use music to to anesthetize people's souls you can fill them with sound information which doesn't actually have any enlightening effect on a human psyche and to people who have not made much of a study of what music is and what music can do it can pass as music without actually um functioning like the original word music meant. I'd just like to explain for a second for your audience the idea of these two words, music and entertainment, because they've changed. So music is 
It comes from, where are we now? Yeah, it comes from uh, the old French musique via Latin from Greek musica techne, which means art of the muses. Now, the muses were uh, nine goddesses, the daughters of Zeus, who is the god of mind and will, and Mnemosyne, I think is how you pronounce her name, Mnemosyne, who is the goddess of memory. So art, if you like, of all sorts, is the combination of memory and will. Originally, the word music is an adjective, like the word cubic, artistic, quadratic, citric. Yeah, It's something that describes a quality inside something, not a thing itself. That's actually a really unknown idea in modern society. Music is considered a noun. Worse than a noun, it's considered a commodity. It's not even nowadays considered as it was before the advent of recording technology as this wonderful uh, transcendent thing that comes through a musician into the ear of the listener and then it is gone again and you have to uh, acknowledge it and cherish it for what it is while it's there. No, now we actually have it on a piece of plastic in our hand or as a bunch of electrons you know, in our phone or whatever it is. It's become a thing and as such, I see that as a, what's the word for it, an insult to its original intention, its original meaning. It's a, it's a de-holification. I'm sorry, I'm losing my vocabulary here, but I think you get what I mean. Well, that's an issue in itself, isn't there? Um, like that expression from years ago, you know, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. It's like trying to find, yeah. trying to find the words in the, in the first place. Sure. Uh, now, all of this, um, is not purely accidental in your view. Um, it's not just part of the evolution of culture, the devolution of culture, we might call it. It's not sure. just not just an artifact of the technological era, you know, from the dawn of recorded music onward. Um, there have been a lot of unintentional side effects and fallout that have affected our culture uh, for various reasons uh, throughout mainly the 20th century now into the 21st, but you believe that there's actually an agenda here, not in, in everything and always, but nevertheless one can be identified. So perhaps uh, you could talk a little bit more about that because you did mention at the top of the hour that you developed an, an interest in conspiracies because you always were a bit uncertain about the world or had your doubts. And I'm mm-hmm. very much in the same boat as that. I always felt that there was something missing or there was something that was there not acknowledged i felt that there was a lot that that beyond five sense reality a lot that most of us couldn't or wouldn't perceive that concludes part one of our interview part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com legalizefreedom.com